Storie Libere Presents I have photographs of my mother leading a commune parade down Fleet Street. I have photos of me curled up on a commune beanbag reading a commune library book. I have photos of the commune kids running three-legged races on the front lawn. Photos of us in maroon body warmers tugging each other around on sledges over the frozen waters of the commune lake. I have brochures too, designed and printed on the commune printing presses that list the therapy and meditation groups on offer at the commune. I even have copies of commune videos made to promote the new lifestyle we were pioneering on the cutting edge of consciousness and out in the middle of the Suffolk countryside. I have another video made by the BBC with early footage from the ashram in India. People saying beautiful, doing Tai Chi, people naked in padded rooms, hitting each other with fists and pillows. I have copies of the newspapers that were hand-printed in the commune design studios, the photos silk-screened, the headlines hand-applied in letter-set letters. In these newspapers, there are interviews with the commune's leading spiritual pioneers, written by other commune residents in the zany language of the time. I even have some evidence that there was family life before the commune. Photos of me back in 1978, sulking on the steps of our house in Leeds, clutching a Snoopy doll and two stuffed monkeys, just a month before we dyed all our clothes orange. This evidence has taken me years to gather together. I can look at these artifacts now and see myself. But in the late 1980s, a teenager living with my mother in North London after the communes had ended, I had no evidence of our history. In a small fire out in our back garden, my mother burned her photos, her orange clothes, her mala necklace with its 108 sandalwood beads and locket with a picture of Bhagwan. Despite my pleas to let me sell it and keep the money, she even burned the bright gold rim she had paid a commune jeweler to fix around her mala locket in the later, more style-conscious commune years. A week after the fire, I borrowed a pair of pliers, prized the silver rim off my own mala, and threw the beads away. I had no other evidence of my commune childhood. I had lost touch with the other commune kids. My mother never talked about the commune, or if she did, I refused to reply. We had both stopped using the names Bhagwan had given us. In our cupboards, there was no longer a single red or orange item of clothing. Sometimes it seemed the only evidence of the past was in the shape of my body, the tough skin on the soles of my feet from the years of walking barefoot over gravel, the tight tendons in my calf from a lifetime of standing on tiptoes, looking for my mother in an orange crowd. Then, in January 1990, when I was 14, in the back of the newspaper on my mother's kitchen table, I found an article about the commune. I tore it out, folded it, put it in my back pocket. For the next month, I carried the clipping everywhere. At school and on buses, I would pull it out, read it, fold it, and put it back. I carried that newspaper article until it was too tattered to read. Still, I carried it in my back pocket for another two weeks, until finally, I left it in the pocket of my jeans and put them in the wash, and it was gone. The article from the Times was headlined, 
Minister acts after inquest on schoolboy. A boy was found hanged after a row during a clothes swapping game with girls at the Coastwan Private Boarding School, Devon. An inquest was told today. The school where some teenage boys and girls share the same bedroom is organized on communal lines and follows the teachings of the Indian guru Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Nicholas Schultz, aged 13, fell out with a girl he had a crush on because she would not let him wear her clothes. About half an hour later, Nicholas was found hanging from a rope, swinging in the grounds. I was convinced I knew that swing and the tree it hung from, a great spindly oak in the forest out near the commune boundaries. But I also knew I was mistaken. The commune I remembered had already closed, but this school, Coswan in Devon, was a continuation of my commune. I knew the teacher Shana, who told the Times that 13-year-old boys and girls shared bedrooms because the kids were mature and totally trustworthy. I knew some of the Coswan kids from my own years in those mixed dormitories. I also knew the loneliness of that boy, whose sorrow did not quite fit into the commune's decade-long dream of laughter and of celebration. I could feel that same familiar sorrow deep in my chest, like an old bruise. But I had no idea of the origins of my sadness. When I read the clipping, I remembered there was a reason why I was this way: isolated, strange, shabby, and alone. I carried that clipping around with me because I finally had one piece of concrete evidence. At last, something outside of me existed to confirm it had all taken place. I treasured the clipping because it was a single piece of ballast. Something to hold me to the ground, to make my history real. I carried that article around because I knew the boy hanging from the swing could have been me. This was the first chapter of My Life in Orange, an autobiography written by the English journalist Tim Guest. And you are listening to Soli. A journey into the memories of the children who grew up in Osho's communes between the beginning of the 70s and the first half of the 80s. This is Roberta Lippi. I write for TV, radio and the web. During the writing of my book Wild Wild Sheila, I came across a lot of news about children raised in communes. But where were those children? What happened to their hearts and souls? What have they become today and why? We will listen to discordant voices, full of emotions, nostalgia, but also loneliness and anger. Voices that still question themselves today about what they have experienced. A childhood undoubtedly different from all others, made up of freedom and abandonment, curiosity and harshness, introspection and loneliness again, in the midst of a multitude of people. Tim Guest is just one of many children who in the 70s had to follow their parents on their personal journey to freedom. Adults who had found comfort in the precepts of an oriental philosophy which elevated them from their western lives. 
lives now considered too aseptic and conformist, bourgeois lives, tired lives, banal lives that drove their souls away from the search for something really superior, something which could give meaning to life itself indeed. Rich or poor, they all wanted to achieve the same goal, to reconnect with a true self, thanks to a spiritual journey to be fulfilled by themselves alone, and at the same time with others, that is, the others of the commune. Some of these adults were also parents, and in order to stay close to their master, they had no choice. They had to take their children with them or abandon them, entrusting them to relatives or schools in the communes scattered throughout the world. Tim Guest, I repeat, was one of those children. But today, we can't interview him because he's dead. His story of perceived abandonment following a Sanyazin mother became a bestseller while he was still alive. Guest was a successful journalist for The Guardian and The Telegraph, an ironic, sensitive, curious, intelligent and alert man, like almost all children raised in the Osher's communes. He was found dead in his London home on the 31st of July 2009 for a massive morphine overdose. At the time of his death, he was listening to Radiohead. He had just been married. He and his wife were looking for a child. His friends called him an experimenter, even with drugs. He had tried them all. Guest, like many of the children who grew up in the Osher's communes, could only be a free spirit who ended up creating his own prisons. But let's take a step back and tell something of the context to understand where we're headed. Bhagwan Shri Rajneesh is an Indian spiritual teacher. He began his activity in the 60s, and in the mid-70s, his closest followers founded for him the Ashram of Pune, a community in India that soon, thanks to word of mouth, began to welcome followers from all over the world. Yes, because those who had happened by chance in the commune of Bhagwan, as Osho was called in those years, returned home so enthusiastic, but above all so serene and aware that it was almost impossible for acquaintances who faced them, especially if dissatisfied with their own lives, to not say, I want to try it too. And so, in those years, began a real movement of followers from all over the world. Some will touch that world briefly and then return from where they came from, simply trying to apply the teachings to their daily lives, while others will decide that they cannot live without that emotion. They must stay close to the master. Bhagwan is a charismatic leader who speaks with a modernity and a disorienting simplicity. He knows how to be ironic and provocative, and his movement introduces an amazing novelty compared to other Eastern philosophies, the concept that spirituality and materialism can coexist. Alongside the master, 
and thanks to his meditative techniques, these people seek enlightenment. The only objective that counts in this useless life, made of futile tinsel and sterile and conventional relationships. And so, many move to Pune. They leave everything behind. They almost always sell their possessions to donate their earnings and support the commune. They're young adults, most of them pervaded by the hippie culture, in full rebellion against conformism. Many of them have young children who will follow them in what is perceived as the most beautiful adventure of their lives. But the commune, as the word itself says, puts everything in common, even the children. Bagwan, or Osho, has very clear ideas on the subject. The idea that children are your possession is wrong. They are born through you, but they do not belong to you. The starting point is certainly valid. No one could ever disagree. Children do not belong to their parents. They must be able to live their lives. They must not see their potential frustrated. They must satisfy their own existence, not the one of those who gave birth to them. Children do not face the same historical period. They do not face the same problems that their parents have experienced. They must not imitate them. Osho actually looked at the world of relationships with a modernity which was completely unusual for those times. But what is absolutely true and in touch with deepest reality does not always have the desired effects. In my commune, we were destroying the very roots. We were destroying the family. We were dissolving the family into the commune. The children were not going to belong to the parents. They could love them, they could meet them, they could invite them, but they cannot possess them. They have been only vehicles of bringing those children to the world. The children are not their property. The commune will take care of the children. Patti Safian had just finished fifth grade when her mother, separated, left New York, abandoning her with the father in order to reach Pune. The pain I felt missing my mom during that period was indescribable. For the next 13 years, she would float in and out of our lives like a ghost. Kind of like her blue Paravion letters that would somehow reach us from India. I would anxiously await those letters, which often shared Bhagavan's words of wisdom like look at the stars and the sky and the moon and know that I, your mother, am looking at the same stars, moon and sky. Those words didn't help. They didn't help when I got my period for the first time or kissed my first boyfriend or when I got dropped by my seventh grade friends one week because I straightened my curly hair and didn't want to go swimming that day. Those words, I thought, 
were bullshit. What did Bhagawan know about the special bond between my mom and me? Patti had suffered a lot from her mother's physical absence. But what was happening to those children who, instead, had been forced to follow their parents? Those who had left with them, and like Tim, spent their days standing on tiptoes in the hope to find their parents in the midst of the crowd. We'll try and find out together, listening to their own voice. Previously unheard accounts of men and women who lived firsthand as children the experience of the commune. Its light and dark sides, the rules, the school, playing, working, meditation. But most of all, what it meant to grow up with parents who wanted them, indeed, to be in common, on all levels. This is Roberta Lippi, and I look forward to having you back for the next episode of Soli, here on storielibere.fm. The international version of Soli has been translated by Edoardo Rialti. The international voice of Roberta Lippi is Cecilia Gragnani. Storie Libere Production by Gianandrea Cerone and Rossana De Michele. Editorial Supervisor Guido Guenci and Chiara Tagliaferri. Post and Sound Design Era Zero.